His reading is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What, then, was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. Okay, thank you. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you for that uh, wonderful truth, that for those of us who know Jesus Christ and trust in him, we are your children. You call us your sons and daughters, and we have free access before you. So coming to you as our Father, Father, will you teach us Please teach us more of your love for us, more of how we can express our love for you. Amen. Uh, well, what do we do with the law of the uh, Old Testament? That's an enormously practical question uh, in the Christian life. Uh, there's a lot of it. Um, what do we do with it? Uh, do we discard it? Do we uh, uh, learn it off by heart? How, how do we relate to this uh, law of the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments, etc.? That's really Paul's issue today. And it's a pertinent one in his argument. Uh, because part of what he's looking at in this book of Galatians is how we mature or grow as Christians. 
If you remember broadly, he's, uh, he's countering some false teachers who have asserted, okay, what you need to do, it works a bit like this, the Christian life. Faith in Jesus Christ plus obedience to the law equals salvation. That's the false teaching that he's counteracting. Faith plus obedience equals salvation. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Faith equals salvation and will lead to obedience. It's that way round. Let's get that straight. And he's repeatedly banging this question uh, over and over again. Uh, And so today he's saying, so don't, don't get confused about the law and the Old Testament. Don't misuse it. Don't go that first route, faith plus obedience to law equals salvation. Don't, don't do that. Let's understand rightly uh, why God gave us these laws. Now, we're spending, I mean, Paul's spending quite a lot of time on the, uh, the detail, in one sense, the, the doctrine of the Christian life, particularly in these chapters uh, three and four. It's tempting to want to think, can we just get on to the, uh, uh, the practical payoff? You know, what does this daily mean in, in my life? Um, let me just remind us, there is, there is nothing more practically useful than understanding the, the engine of the Christian life. There's nothing more practically useful than that. Uh, we're going to try and buy a new car in the next uh, couple of months or something like that. Now, you could just get slightly obsessed. You could go to a, a showroom and get obsessed with the, uh, the little gizmos and gadgets that come and think, oh, look, look at what they do nowadays. DVD players in the back of headrests, mm, must have that. Uh, auto-correcting sat-nav that can pick up um, traffic jams and then automatically reroutes you, mm, must have that. Uh, masseur built into the driver's chair that just sort of, you know, oh, yeah, must have that. And you could focus on these things and buy a car with all these things, but if it had no engine, well, that's not a great car. Uh, And you may have these lovely little features on the uh, exterior, but you're going nowhere. Uh, And so here in much of this letter of Galatians, Paul is saying, can we just get the, before we get onto the practical outworkings, can we get the engine clear? Because otherwise, if you've got no engine, so what? Uh, And if your engine is faulty and malfunctions and breaks down regularly, well, then everything else will collapse around you. Can we, can we get the, the engine of the Christian life clear, which is the gospel, faith in the promises of Jesus Christ. That is the engine which drives uh, the Christian life uh, and the Christian. So that's, uh, that's uh, what we, he's working on. So uh, really, it's quite simple today. What do we do with the law? There's a little assertion, verses 15 to 18. Well, look, the law doesn't cancel or uh, trump the promise that God makes. And there are a couple of questions which he follows up. So let's, uh, let's work it through, just as the text does. So verses 15 to 18, the law doesn't trump the promise, doesn't cancel it out. Essentially here he says that there are two ways you can relate to God, by promise or by law. Now those are very different. Uh, if you relate to someone by promise, that's all about the promise someone makes. I will, I will. That's a promise. It's very different from a law which says you will. You will do that. God says, I will. He makes a promise, I will. That's very different from you will. See? One is all about the promisor. Uh, the other is all about the promisee. I think those are words. Um, so think of it this way. Uh, a father says to his uh, late teenage daughter, right, when you go to university, I'm paying the lot. 
which is a relief to you because you're a teenager with nothing. But I'm paying the lot, everything. So I'll pay your fees and your accommodation and your maintenance. And, uh, hey, listen, I just, you know, I just throw in a few extra as well. You know, you can just, I'll give you an allowance on top of everything of 500 quid a month. You'll be fine. I'll pay for everything. That's a promise. The father says, I will. That's delightful if you get that sort of promise. Uh, very different is a law where father says, okay, got some important years coming up. If you get the best mark in the year, I'll pay for everything. Nationally. If you get the best A-level percentages out of anyone in the UK, you're in. I'll, I'll pay the lot. If you get the highest SAT score in the country, I'll pay for the lot. See, very different. One is, it's just a promise. It's all about me. You have to do nothing. The other is, now you work your socks off. Very different. I will, you will. That's the contrast here. Uh, let's work through it. So uh, verse 15 of uh, uh, chapter 3. Brothers, here's an everyday example, a will. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been established, so it is in this case. So a will. Uh, take the example then. Aunt Agatha dies. Dear Aunt Agatha dies, and uh, her will uh, emerges from the uh, solicitors. Now, at that point, no one can change it. Uh, you know, it's copied and it's fixed. And she, she's gone. She can't change it. No one can change it. You could try and rip out a page which says half to my sister and keep it all for you. You could try that, but there'll be enough. You can't change it. It's too late. You can't annul it. You can't say, oh, I don't like that. I'm, I'm sure she didn't really want to give money to my... To, Tiggles the cat uh, to look after him for the next 10 years. You can't. It's done. You can't change it. That's Paul's point here. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. I will bless you and your descendants and you'll get great land and be a great people. I will bless you. Now, he confirmed that promise. Chapter 15 of Genesis, chapter 17, with covenant a solemn oath. So there's one sense, it's a sort of double lock. God promises, he doesn't lie, and he swears a covenant. He writes it, it is written down effectively, I will not. So it's a solemn promise made there. There's a double lock. Now the promise is, verse 16, uh, to Abraham and his seed. The scripture doesn't say to seeds, meaning many people, but your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, God makes this promise, you will have a great land, and you'll be an enormous uh, people, and I will bless you. Now, he makes that promise to Abraham and his immediate descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, and, and so on. And on one level, when they go into the promised land, it's fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, says Paul. But there's a deeper, truer level. God made that promise, and he was saying, really, it only gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ that this promise of blessing, as we looked at last time, of justification by faith, acceptance before God, and the Holy Spirit, those come through Jesus Christ. That was always really what God was talking about when he spoke to Abraham. God made promises. And so, conclusion, but little at this point, verse 17, or what I mean is, the law came later. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God. 
and thus do away with the promise. Okay, so 430 years later, God said to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, here is here's a law. Here are the Ten Commandments and various other laws. Now, the law does not cancel the promise. The law doesn't trump the promise. The promise was always there. It's not broken. It's a will that you can't alter. That remains in place. That's his assertion. So, what do you want? Do you want your inheritance by a promise? You get it. You can have all this money because it's all about me, or do you want to earn it by law? Paul says it was always by promise. Christian life, the blessings of salvation, always by a promise. And the fact that a law came along does not change that at all. Okay. Two little questions that come out of that then. First, fairly obvious one. Well, what was the point of that then? I mean, what was the point of the law? God made a promise, and a law comes along and doesn't change it. Well, what was the point of that? Good question. Well, depends how you ask it. Um, but verses 19 and 20, you see how the question gets phrased, quite just like that. What then was the purpose of the law? Why did God bother if he'd made this promise? Answer, it was added because of transgressions until Jesus Christ, the seed to whom the promise referred, had come. Now, It was added because of transgressions. That doesn't mean that God gave the law primarily to restrain people. That he made these promises in the Old Testament, and the people said, oh, those are wonderful, God's going to bless us. But now we can just run around and do what we want. Oh, quick, better better give them some rules to hem them in, to calm them down. Not primarily to restrain But actually, the point of the law primarily was to reveal and exacerbate their sinful character. Now, we'll get to it uh, as he proves it in the text. But let me just, this is always how it works for Paul. So let me give you a few little references from uh, Romans where he makes the same point. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, through the law, we become conscious of sin. It reveals sin. Romans 5, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. God gave law to make sin worse. Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said, do not covet. Why did God bother giving the law? He gave it to reveal how sinful we were. And to stir up sin within us, to to really make that obvious. It's very striking, isn't it? You never thought of it that way. That uh, Paul essentially says, imagine there's a fire. Fire, Your house is on fire. What do you do? He says, well, the law, it's not water that will put the fire out. It's oxygen that (laughs) will make the fire roar larger. If there is sin in our lives... Law is not going to calm it down. Law is going to blow it up, make it expand, grow larger. That's why God gave the law, in part. So in particular, uh, verse 19, uh, it was added because of transgressions. That is, it 
it reveals, or let me put it this way, deep within us there's always sin, but as soon as you get given a rule, you become a lawbreaker. Let me try and uh, flesh that out. It may be that in my own, hypothetically, it may be in my own heart, I have a real issue with traffic wardens. It might be that. And uh, lurking within my own heart, there is anger and resentment and frustration uh, and irritation. It's just lurking. I mean, I'm I'm slightly unaware of it. But then I, I park on Down Street, I stay a little too long, and I come back to the car, and there's a traffic warden. And uh, I'm too late, and he slapped it on the, on, the, on the windscreen. Now, at that point, he has applied a law to me. Now, if I grab the ticket and uh, screw it up and throw it in his face and uh, then try and run him over, what has the law done? See, that anger, that sort of irritation with the traffic warden, it was always lurking within me. But as soon as he's applied the law, oh, that stirred up my, that stirred up my sin. I'm now a lawbreaker. It's exacerbated something that was already there. Paul is saying, just so. That is the role of law. Or um, uh, lying. I, I might be addicted to lying, but actually not truly be aware of it in my own heart. I could just be a compulsive liar. But then someone confronts me with uh, uh, the biblical commandment, do not lie. And I'll think, okay, God says don't lie. But I still do. I still do. And actually what the law has done is, is revealed to me, actually I'm addicted to this. I didn't really realize before. Now someone has commanded me stop, but I still do it. Gosh, I, I really do have a problem here. No, I may have been slightly aware that I lied quite a bit. But someone slaps a law down and I still break it. I'm a lawbreaker now. I know I have a problem. I can't stop. Just the, you know, just the exaggerations, the white lies, the, or the blatant whoppers. I just can't stop myself. So what has law done? It has revealed my character. It has exaggerated the sin within me, magnified it. That's what the law is there to do. So the law both reveals sin and it it intensifies sin. So what's the point of the law? Just that. Reveals and intensifies. It's added for the sake of transgressions. To expand us, to make us into transgressors, to such that we see that. Okay? That's the point of the law. Next question that flows on from that. Okay. Verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Answer? No. Don't be so silly. Don't be ridiculous. God doesn't sort of of fight himself. You see the question? Okay, well, if if God makes a promise and uh, then he gives a law and the law makes us a little more sinful, is that sort of, is that fighting against one another? No. Because God gave the law to make us realize how desperately we need the promise. That's his argument here. So if you go back to the, uh, to the parent and his daughter, the parent says, I will pay for you to go to university. I will. Everything. Uh, but then six months later, say, comes in with, oh, by the way, you need to get the best A-level results in the country, the best SAT score. Now, she's a motivated uh, teenager, so she really goes for it. But thinks, I've oh, got to be the best, got to be the best, got to be the best. But after a while, being the best in the country... Just the hours she's putting in, 
they, they crush her. The, sort of the desperate, you know, she, even within her own school, there are people doing better than her. And she realizes, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. I just can't. So tearfully goes back to her father. Can I, you know, you promised it. Well, can I just go back to the promise, this sort of new rule? I don't like it. Yeah, of course, of course. The rule was only ever to make you realize you, can, you can't do it on your own. You, you need my generosity. It's the only way. See, the law was there to force Israel, the God's people, back to We can't do this ourselves. We need to trust on God's promise. So, uh, verse 21. Uh, Is the law there opposed to the promises of God? No, no, absolutely not. Because if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. The law was never meant to impart life. It was never meant to be a ladder that you could climb your way to heaven. It, don't criticize it for that. Don't criticize oxygen if it makes a fire worse when you want the fire out. It's just, oxygen's rubbish. It's just rubbish as a way to treat fires. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just not designed for that. So the law was not designed to bring spiritual life. Now, God sent his spirit to do that. It's never meant to. If within us, as there are naturally, a, a sinful nature, if you add law to it, you get transgression. But that's not a problem of the law. Because if you take a perfect person, you take Jesus Christ, and add the law, you get righteousness. There's nothing wrong with the law. Yes, for us, sinners plus law, we get worse, transgressors. For Jesus, Jesus plus law, perf- perfect. Righteousness. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's just its impact upon sinners like you and me. So the law was never meant to bring spiritual life. Only God's spirit can do that. He says, let me, Paul then gives a couple of pictures or, or metaphors to really try and force it home. He says, the Lord, it's, it's both a, it's like a jailer and a tutor. That's how it works. So it's like a jailer, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. It's a striking picture. We're going through life merrily, and we think we're fine. Uh, But then um, someone introduces law for the first time. You've got to imagine this. You're living in a lawless country. For the first time, someone introduces law, and you realize, oh, gosh, I'm a... I'm a criminal, and the law sends you to jail. And there you are in prison, and you say to the jailer, whose name is Law, uh, that's the image here, you say to the jailer, uh, can I get out, please? Can you let me out? And the jailer says, well, look, here, here's what you have to do to get out of this prison. Uh, do not have any other gods before. Or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you do those two things, you, you can leave the prison. Ah, oh, well, I'm stuffed because I never do those two things perfectly. Well, I'll have another go, says the law, and you might be able to do it. Until eventually the criminal just keeps trying, keeps trying, keeps trying, and realizes, I'll never do this. And says, so, is there someone else I can speak to? 
Lord, you'll never let me out. Is there anyone else? That can, is there any other way out of this jail? And the Lord says, well, you could go and speak to him. His name's Jesus Christ. You could ask him. Can I get out of it? Yeah, yeah, of course. Trust in me. You see, the law is designed to force us to look to the promise. That's its role. God gave the, the law to Israel without giving to most of them the spirit so that they realized we can't keep God's standards. We can't do it. We can't earn our way into a relationship with God. So that when Jesus Christ comes, the response should be, thank goodness. Thank goodness, here he is. Here's a way out when we can't do it ourselves. So law is a jailer. Then also law is a tutor. So verse 24. The law put in charge. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Literally, the law was a tutor, a guardian, a nanny, that sort of sense. It's a technical word, pedagogos, pedagogy, you know, that sort of sense of it. Uh, the pedagogos. Now, in the culture of the time, uh, in a wealthy family, uh, the, the parents would put a tutor, pedagogos, in charge of the children, the sons in particular, until they reached the age of maturity. And, and the job of the, 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 the tutor was to um, uh, help the young man grow up. So they would discipline them. They'd encourage them to live a noble life with a stick, if needs be. They would discipline them. They would uh, teach them. Uh, or um, That's not quite right. They would uh, test them on the things they've learned at school. So the role of the guardian was to enforce discipline, help the young person not veer off track enormously until he was old enough to make his own decisions for himself. And so Paul says, well, the law was a bit like that. See, the law can't, the tutor can't say to the child, here is the inheritance. Only the parents can say that. All the tutor can do is, is hem him in a little bit, hem in the young man, until he's reached an age where he's mature. Well, that, the law was a bit like that, says Paul as well, a tutor. So do you see, in this whole section, what Paul is arguing, does... How do law and promise fit together? Well, in God's, in the history of salvation, the law was there to make those who are under it go, we need the promise. The promise, that's, that's the only way. That's the only way that we can be right with God. Uh, do you see, this was only a temporary thing. So uh, this negative role was uh, only there. So verse 19 uh, the law was added because of transgressions until the seed, Jesus Christ, came. Until. Verse 23, uh, before faith came, so before Jesus Christ came, we were held prisoners, under the, prisoners by the law, locked up, until, verse 23, faith should be revealed. Or again, verse 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So this role that law had of imprisoning, of, uh, of restraining, of, uh, sorry, of imprisoning, of exacerbating, revealing sin. It was a temporary one in the history of Israel. It wasn't always meant to be that way. So it works on two levels, both in, in, in Bible history, 
the law is given so that Israel realizes we're helpless, we need a savior. That's true in history. I think also Paul is suggesting here, it's true for many individuals in their experience. So it's true of uh, uh, some individuals who go through a particularly religious phase, determined to be moral, before they realize, oh, this is hopeless. This is hopeless. And put their faith in Christ and become Christians. Many would try and do that. Or you could do it in a different sphere. In the workplace, many would be determined, I'm going to prove myself, I'm going to prove myself, prove myself, prove myself. And realize, actually, that's not doing it for me. That's not, I'm not deeply satisfied with that. That doesn't fulfill me as a human being, so they're forced to look elsewhere, to turn to Jesus Christ. So I think that Paul is suggesting this. It's true of history, the biblical history, but it's true in the lives of many individuals. They go through a a desperate attempt to prove themselves righteous before realizing, I can't do this. I can't do this. Can someone have mercy on me? Is there just a promise I can trust? Well, yes, there is. Yes, there is. That's how it's to work. So having dealt with these two questions, then, Paul gets to the wonderful truth, the conclusion, and... um, which is really 26 to 29, which is, is slightly abridged. And I'm only touching on them now. We'll, we'll deal with these verses properly next week. Let me pick it up, pick it up from verse 25, because uh, there's no break between them in the Greek. There's actually connected. There's a because between the two verses. So verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law because you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. The law, who is a tutor, who restrains and guides us, is no longer needed. Because at this point, the young man has inherited. He's become a a full-grown man. All the commentators point to this, this sense of putting on Christ uh, in, um, in the Roman culture of the time. Uh, when the, uh, the, the eldest son reached manhood and was deemed a man, he was given a fresh toga, the, uh, the toga virilis. To, to, so it was obvious that he was a man now. He was given something new to wear. And it seems to me that that is the, the metaphor being used here. You were in desperate need of having to have a guardian look after you. But now, you're a man, you're an adult, you've grown up, you've put on Jesus Christ. So you don't relate to the law in the same way anymore. No longer a guardian, no longer uh, someone with a stick who beats you and is a pain and you really want to get away from. Once you come to God as Father, you now hear his law as loving instruction, wise advice, godly counsel. It's, it's a pleasure because you now think, oh, I'm not, too sh- not so certain what to do. Dad, what do I do? Well, here, let me tell you. And the relationship is completely changed. So don't, what do you do with the law in the Christian life? Don't make the mistake of thinking it can save you. 
Actually, God gives it in part as a mirror to hold up to us to say, look how bad you are. But when you become a Christian, actually, law and gospel, uh, the promise of God, trust in Jesus Christ and you're saved, and his law, they, they deepen one another. Look at it this way. Uh, first of all, the, the, once you understand the gospel, that, that deepens how you can view God's law. So uh, lying. Lying is an example. Uh, before you're a Christian, you might think, you, what is lying? Lying is this, this sort of the whoppers. You know, I don't, I'm not a liar. Who wants to be called a liar? I'm not a liar because I don't tell desperately big lies to my wife, parents, children, etc. I don't, I don't lie badly. See, when... When you know that it's not your own performance that puts you right with God, you can accept, yeah, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. I tell little white lies to get myself off the hook occasionally. You know, you know that story, you know, I relayed what happened when I was at work the other day. I slightly exaggerated it. You know, I came off pretty good in that account uh, in a way I didn't really deserve to. Once you accept that actually it's not your own performance, you're not your quality of truth-telling that puts you right with God, you can, really, you can really mine the depths of where the law goes. Or a classic one that Jesus uses, murder. See, if you're not a Christian, do not murder. I don't murder. Not many of us here this morning are probably murderers, I hope. Um, but Jesus says, look, when you come to me, you realize that, that, that law goes much, much deeper. It really means don't be angry with anyone, because that's murder in your heart. But you think, okay, well, yeah, I am guilty of that. And I could admit that I'm guilty of that, because I know that it's not my performance in not murdering that puts me right with God. Do you see, once, once you really understand the gospel, you can, you can plumb the depths of the law. You can really push it into areas of your heart that you were never willing to do so before. So, so the gospel deepens how we can receive the law. But of course... The other side of the coin is the law does deepen how we receive the gospel. See, what's going on here, this, this main point of law inflaming our sin? What the law is designed to do in part is to lift the lid off our respectability. It reveals our sin, condemns our sin, expands our sin. So we realize, well, actually, I am, I am worse than I perhaps thought and therefore when we go to Jesus Christ it isn't with a yeah well I'm quite a good bloke and you're here to help me out thank you very much Jesus but it is as a oh I am in desperate need of you or, or one last little picture of this in a fish tank I, this is, I'm slightly off piece here personally but in a fish tank there's always lots of muck at the bottom of a fish tank the little you know the fishes they're lovely they're pretty but they do make a little bit of muck and so at the bottom of the tank there's a load of muck now if you don't ever if you don't ever get round to clearing up the muck the water is slowly poisoned and your fishes will die but just over time but you don't see it the water is is clean as far as you can tell. It's not obvious that the fish are getting poisoned by all the muck that's at the bottom, the sediment. Now, if uh, a toddler comes along and naughtily shoves his hand into the fish tank and swirls it all around a little bit, uh, what happens? Well, all of a sudden, all the sediment that was completely on the bottom and you didn't see it, it floats up and, and actually you, 
Actually, the water's very cloudy. It's very mucky. Which see, that's what law does to us. You know, in our own lives, and for those of us who are believers, in our own lives, we think we're all right. Look at the, look at the clarity, the purity of, of the water of my life. It's all right. It's very clear, isn't it? And when we read the law rightly, it goes into our hearts and stirs them around and makes us realize, oh, there's a lot of muck there. Actually, I, I am worse than I realized. Now, we'll never allow the law into our hearts to stir up the muck unless we're confident that we're forgiven already in Christ. But when it does that, it makes us realize again, I do fall a long way short. There, there is muck in my life. And I need to address that in part, but I'm very grateful that there's a saviour who has done that for me. So let me put, one commentator put it this way. I, I found this a very striking comment. This was John Stott. He put, not until the law has humbled us to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Not until the law has humbled us to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven? Or, or to put it slightly differently, if you go through the Christian life and it is, it's superficial, it's joyless, you, you don't see a great amount of change. It's just, you know, you just do it. You're just a Christian. Then you, that lack of joy is in part because of a lack of realizing our debt. And we need the law, to stir up the muck so we see it in front of us, so we turn with a, a fresh joy, a fresh gratitude, a fresh delight and relief and thanksgiving. So don't use the law to save you. Actually, don't lose, use the law to, to push you on necessarily in, uh, in Christian growth. That's through the gospel. But let the law do its work of revealing sin explaining to us quite how bad we are, quite how desperately we need Jesus Christ. The law was always meant to make us turn back to the promise, the gift. God saying, I give you salvation in my son, Jesus Christ. I will, not you will, I will. But it's when we try, well, that's when we realize how desperately we need him. And to rely on his promise alone. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, at first glance, these, these words, these truths seem uh, historical and a long way from us. Please, we pray, we don't want to be joyless or superficial Christians. So would you once again cause us to wonder at both the depravity of our sin, the blackness of our own character, and therefore cause us to wonder with thankful hearts again at your glorious promise of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.